Hey everyone, I'm back with Keith Preston tonight. So let's talk about the anti-war left or lack thereof. It's pretty breathtaking to see Democrats who are often mocked by neocons and super hawks for being dubs now universally supporting the deployment of military and economic aid to Ukraine in an effort to give Russia a bloody nose during its military operation there. Now, what's doubly peculiar is how all factions of the Democratic Party, ranging from the mainstream Democrats such as Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi, to progressives in the squad and Bernie Sanders, all voting for these aid packages without any form of resistance. In your view, Keith, what does this say about the current state of affairs among the anti-war left? Well, I don't know that there is an anti-war left in the United States of any size or significance. Certainly, there are individual leftists that have an anti-war perspective, usually on the far fringes of the left. You've got the circle around Caleb Maupin, for example, and the Center for Political Innovation, You have uh, someone like Caitlin Johnstone, who's an uh, Australian writer. Uh, Jimmy Dore, I think, has a fairly consistently anti-war line, although I'm not as familiar with his views on foreign policy. But uh, you have someone like Glenn Greenwald, who's also uh, a fairly strong anti-war person. But for the most part, we don't really see a great deal of opposition to war on the left anymore. Certainly, that's the case with the mainstream liberal left, the Democratic Party-oriented left, but even others further to the left, we see a type of wishy-washy attitude. You know, I have come across left-wing anarchists, for example, who were basically taking the Biden administration's position on Ukraine. Uh, I've come across social Democrats and, and Trotskyites who have a similar position. So it's really amazing to see how the full spectrum of the left with the exception of some pacifists, some left libertarians, and some Marxists, for the most part, the full spectrum of the left has largely embraced a pro-war position on Ukraine, which is an interesting turn of events, to say the least. Yeah, it's very bizarre, actually, when you think about it. And from your time studying these kind of like anti-war movements, when did you notice the left start making a drift towards pro-interventionist foreign policy positions? The very first inkling I got of that was at the time of the first Gulf War, the first Iraq War in 1990 and 91. When that war was taking place, I came across a number of cases of luminaries of the left who were taking a pro-war position, including people who had been prominent in the anti-Vietnam War movement. One of these was Tom Hayden, who was, um, he's probably most well known for having been the husband of Jane Fonda. He's deceased now. He died a few years ago. But Tom Hayden was actually one of the Chicago Seven. He was one of the defendants in the Chicago conspiracy trial that was, uh, some of your listeners are probably familiar that with that because of the fact that it was made into a movie, I think, a few years ago by uh, the the Borat character, I think, plays Abby Hoffman in it, that particular actor. I don't know what his name is. But you had someone like Tom Hayden 
taking a pro-interventionist position. Uh, Andrew Young, he was a former aide to Martin Luther King. Uh, I believe he was the mayor of Atlanta at one point. At another time, I believe he was a UN ambassador. He took a pro-interventionist position. I believe even George McGovern uh, took a pro-interventionist position during the first Gulf War. And these people were luminaries of the new left as it was in the late 60s and early 70s. And I thought it was bizarre that you had these people doing an about face uh, and taking an interventionist position on Iraq. Uh, And this was in 1991. This was on the second Iraq war. And then throughout the 1990s, I started to notice more and more people adopting a position similar to what today would be called a, a humanitarian hawk, the kind of point of view that people like Samantha Power promote today. During the 1990s, I started seeing people on the left calling for intervention in the civil war that was taking place in the former Yugoslavia, in Bosnia, Serbia, and Croatia, and places like that, Kosovo. I came across people advocating intervention in places like Somalia. Uh, For instance, Ron Dellums was a congressman from California at the time. He was at one point a former associate of the Black Panthers. He was a member of the Democratic Socialist of America. He actually took a pro-interventionist position in Somalia. This was during the intervention that was probably a lot of people are most familiar with that because it was featured in the movie Black Hawk Down. That's uh, from about 30 years ago. There were people at the time who wanted to uh, have an intervention in uh, Haiti on behalf of the regime of Jean Bertrand Aristide, who was a I guess you could say he was a left-wing priest who came to power for a time in Haiti, and there were people who wanted to uh, have an intervention on his behalf when he was threatened by a coup. And then that continued to escalate. During the Afghanistan war after 9-11, there were liberal hawks. Uh, In fact, of all the people in Congress in 2001, there was only one individual who took a consistently anti-war position. And that was Barbara Lee. She was a congresswoman. I think she's still a congresswoman from, I believe, the Oakland area. And even with the Iraq War, the second Iraq War in 2003, you saw a lot of uh, liberal hawks advocating intervention. Writers like George Packer from the Atlantic, the late Nat Hentoff, who was a self-declared pacifist. He was a fan of A.J. Musty, who was a famous socialist pacifist back in the mid-20th century. Uh, Nat Hentoff advocated intervention in Iraq on, I guess, anti-fascist grounds, on the grounds that Saddam Hussein was allegedly a fascist. Christopher Hitchens. Christopher Hitchens was a former Trotskyite uh, who essentially started developing neocon views on foreign policy. He once famously said that he wanted to bomb Afghanistan out of the Stone Age. Uh, That was, again, after uh, 9-11. And that has continued to escalate since then, to the point that when the funding for the war in Ukraine was voted on in Congress, there was not a single Democrat in Congress, not in the House or in the Senate, who voted against funding the war in Ukraine. The bill allocated over $40 billion for escalating the war in Ukraine, and no one on the Democratic side voted against it. Not Bernie Sanders, not Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, none of the the ladies from the squad, not Jamal Bowman, none, none of those people. The only people who voted against this were 
Republicans. There were 57 Republicans in the House, I believe, usually hardcore Trump people like uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert, Paul Gosar, Louis uh, Gohmert, people like that, the, the really hardcore Trump people in, in the Congress. They A lot of them voted against this. Maybe that was solely on anti-Biden rather than anti-war grounds, but that they did vote against this. And then the only person who really raised any qualms about this in the Senate was Rand Paul. So it's interesting to see how the political parties today have gone back to being what they were like, I'd say, in the 1950s, early 1960s, in the pre-Vietnam War era. Back in those days, the Democrats were very much a hawkish party. In fact, the Democrats throughout most of their modern history have been hawks. We have to remember that if we look at the major wars of the 20th century that the United States was involved in, it was uh, World War I, World War II, Korea and Vietnam. And Democratic administrations were the ones that led the United States into every single one of those wars. And we also need to recognize that in the pre-Vietnam War era, you were probably just as likely to find uh, dovish Republicans as uh, probably more likely to find dovish Republicans as opposed to dovish Democrats. In the 1950s, the Republicans were Interestingly, they were a lot like what the the Trump wing of the Republican Party has become since Trump has come along. In the 50s, you had a mixture of Rockefeller Republicans like Ike was one, Nixon was one. You had kind of quasi-populist Republicans. You had your hardcore anti-communists like the uh, Joe McCarthy types. You had isolationist and non-interventionist like Robert Taft. You had uh, libertarian types. You had uh, advocates of trade protectionism like Herbert Hoover and and former President Calvin Coolidge and, and people like that. That's kind of what the Republicans were in the 50s. They were this mixture of, you know, on one hand, kind of Ike Eisenhower centrists and populists and quasi-libertarians and economic nationalists. And Trump has revived that tradition or those collections of traditions within Republicanism in a way that they haven't really existed for a while. You know, during the Reagan era, uh, a lot of that stuff had sort of been submer- was submerged. And, and certainly that continued throughout the 80s and 90s and on into the George W. Bush era. But Trump has largely revived a lot of that, which is interesting. And out because of that, you're starting to see the isolationist tradition among Republicans making a comeback. And, and in many ways, Republicans have started taking, a, a not all, certainly not all, because you've still got a lot of neocons, you've got a lot of super hawks, you've got a lot of Reaganites and people like that. You've got a lot of those in the Republican Party still. Uh, in fact, certainly among the Republican elites, certainly among the donor class, and uh, certainly among a lot of the Republican-oriented media. So we have to consider that. But you're starting to see a revival of these other traditions that tended to take a more skeptical view of military interventionism as well. There's a lot there to go into, but I want to go back to the second Iraq war because at first glance, we did see somewhat of an emergence of an anti-war movement, though curiously, it dissipated after the election of Barack Obama. And heck, even with Trump, when there were still like neocon elements of his administration, continuing like the support of Saudi Arabia's brutal bombing campaign in Yemen and also trying to 
carry out that maximum pressure campaign against Iran, the anti-war left pulled a Casper the Friendly Ghost in that instance. Why do you think that the anti-war movement surge of the Bush era collapsed so quickly over the course of just a few decades? Yeah, that was really interesting to observe. First of all, the the mainstream centrist Democrats were generally pro-war during the Second Iraq War, however much they may deny it now. Hillary Clinton was pro-Iraq War. Joe Biden was pro-Iraq War. But you did have the further left, like the far left end of the Democratic Party and then the left of the Democrats uh, that did organize a large anti-war movement in the buildup to the uh, second Iraq war in 2003. And there were large demonstrations of hundreds of thousands of people uh, in opposition to that. And I think that in hindsight, the, what was really going on there is that the anti-war movement was just a front for an anti-Republican movement or an anti-Bush movement. The only thing that I can decipher is that it must have been a situation where you had the Democratic Party, or at least the left wing of the Democratic Party, you had all of the different kinds of interests that are attached to the Democrats, the NGO type organizations and all that kind of stuff, and all the donors and foundations that are behind that. Apparently, they organized a a massive anti-war movement that was really just a smokescreen for an anti-Republican movement. And and then the anti-war thing is something that they knew would sell and could mobilize a lot of grassroots people from the left. And they did that. They they organized a large anti-war movement. Uh, You had a lot of local governments issuing anti-Iraq war resolutions. You had a lot of them uh, issuing resolutions condemning the Patriot Act. And I, all I can guess is that this was just simply a ruse, that the leadership of this particular movement, the folks who really got it going, created a fake anti-war movement that really was intended to just be an anti-George W. Bush movement. Because as you said, it, it dried up as soon as the Republicans were voted out of office, as soon as President Obama was elected, all of a sudden that was the end of it. And during those years, during the early Obama years, the general word on the left end of the, of the spectrum is, well, we don't want to undermine the Obama presidency. That was the big thing. You know, basically, it was funny because during the Iraq war buildup, you had a lot of conservatives saying things like support the president, support the president. You know, he knows what's best. And all of a sudden you had the uh, left taking the same position as soon as Obama came into office. So it was a sort of an about face. But all I can say is that the anti-war movement of that time period was a scam. That's what it amounts to. That's what I've gathered as well. Now, I do find fascinating some of like the differences that have taken place within the left on war issues, especially among like industrial socialist types. Would you say that socialists figures like Eugene V. Debs are more consistent opponents of war compared to, say, like progressives or just generic social Democrats? Yeah. Eugene V. Debs was the leader of the Socialist Party back during the World War I era, and uh, he was imprisoned for making an anti-war speech at the Socialist Party's convention by a a Democratic administration. It was the administration of Woodrow Wilson. 
And it's certainly true that some of the old school socialists tended to have a fairly consistent anti-war position. During World War I, the uh, socialist line among the more radical socialists was don't fight the capitalist war. Although I would say that even back then, you had some socialists who, who, or some leftists who fell off the wagon, so to speak. For instance, there were even anarchists, uh, prominent anarchists, who actually supported World War I. Uh, Benjamin Tucker, who was a, a leading American individualist anarchist, actually supported the Allies. Peter Kropotkin, one of the godfathers of modern anarchism, suddenly became a Russian patriot during that particular war. So th there's always been these kinds of, uh, I guess you could say, deviations uh, on the far left when it comes to, to war issues. But yeah, it's also true that you saw a lot of people who went to jail in uh, World War I for opposing the war, particularly in the United States. The, the American left in the United States was actually a lot more anti-war than the European left. Most of the, the left-wing parties, and certainly the socialists and social democrats, I don't know about the communists, but the, uh, the socialists and social democrats in Europe tended to support their respective national governments. Uh, in fact, it was the votes of the German Social Democratic Party in the Reichstag, the Reichstag being the German parliament at the time, it was the votes of the Social Democratic Party for war credits that actually made the German participation in World War I possible. Uh, and the, the German Social Democrats are the oldest socialist party in the world. They were actually founded by personal associates of Karl Marx and Frederick Engels and some of their relatives and people like that. So that's the, you know, that's how deep the roots of the SPD are in socialism, historic socialism. And yet, uh, it was, they were rallied behind the Kaiser during World War One which is interesting. Uh, there was an anarchist actually back in the 1860s, I guess, uh, named Bakunin, uh, a Russian anarchist who was a, a, an intense rival of Karl Marx, to say the least. But he once actually said about Karl Marx, he said, Karl Marx is ultimately no different than Bismarck because he's a German patriot and or German nationalist. And, you know, he's going to ultimately back the German Empire if push comes to shove. I mean, he didn't word it that way, but that's what he meant. And interestingly, that's what happened with Marx's party. I mean, Marx's party was Marx himself was long deceased by then. But the party that was founded by his associates and carried on in his name, they actually made World War One possible because of their votes in the Reichstag for war credits. That point you mentioned about Benjamin Tucker was pretty shocking. What were the grounds that he justified his support for World War I based on? Well, if Tucker himself was living in France at the time, and he was always a Francophile. He was always a big fan of French culture. It probably stemmed from his admiration for a lot of the figures from the Enlightenment, the philosophes like Voltaire and, and thinkers like that. But he was actually a Francophile. But among the pro-war position on the left during that war, during World War I, the position was it was a war for democracy against Prussian militarism. It was very similar, actually, to the arguments you hear today in favor of war against Russia. It's depicted among the pro-war left, pro-war liberals and pro-war leftists on the Russia and Ukraine. It's depicted as a war for you know, Western liberalism against uh, Russian authoritarianism and autocracy and militarism. And of course, cultural issues come into that. Russia is viewed by a lot of 
uh, Western leftist as a reactionary, uh, racist, religious, homophobic type of society. And the Germans were viewed that way to a large degree by a lot of leftists in World War One. I. I see. Now, one thing I've noticed lately is just like the inconsistent track record of various politicians in the Democratic Party when it comes to the war issue, because you have like some guys like that Congressman Ro Khanna, for example, who is a vocal opponent of the proxy war in Yemen, but completely toe the uni party line on the Russo-Ukrainian conflict. What explains that inconsistency there? Well, I don't know specifically what Ro Khanna's motivations are as an individual. My guess is he's just working the different angles within his own party. Among the Democratic Party base, the left wing of the party's base that uh, he represents, there's not a lot of sympathy for Saudi Arabia. They're they're viewed as a reactionary, theocratic, absolute monarchy, which they are, whereas Russia doesn't have any sympathy either. As we know from just cover, watching the mainstream media coverage of the war in Ukraine, that particular war is cast as, uh, you know, is presented as a war between Ukrainian democracy. Ukraine is depicted as this equivalent of Sweden or somewhere like that, a Western liberal society uh, versus this kind of reactionary authoritarian Russian aggressor. And I think that that's the general viewpoint that a lot of the Democratic Party base, the progressive wing of the party that Kana represents. So I think that counts for that particular perspective. They view both Russia and Saudi Arabia as conservative regimes that are acting aggressively against other countries. Now, both, both of them are considered fascist, basically. Yeah, would you say a similar logic would apply to the case of like Bernie Sanders' support for like the bombing of Yugoslavia in the late 90s as well? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Now, all things considered, would it be an exaggeration to say that anyone who desires a rollback of like the US's universalist foreign policy would be better off throwing their lot with the rising populist right-wing faction of the Republican Party? Well, I think you're going to have an uphill battle any in any direction you go. I think that's certainly true at the moment when it comes to the war uh, in Russia and Ukraine. If you're opposed to efforts by the Americans to escalate that particular war, then clearly the Republican side has more people who hold to that view than the Democratic side. That There's no question about that. And when it comes to non-interventionism in general, I, I think you have to take it on a case-by-case basis. Donald Trump was a fairly strong, I, I guess I would say he had fairly strong instincts against interventionism. He tended to view his relations with the leadership of other countries as being more like business. It's more about making deals and, you know, that kind of thing. And even when it came to someone like uh, Kim Jong-un, and that that was advantageous. There was a lot of advantages to having a president who views the world in that way. On the Although at the same time, uh, Donald Trump was extremely pro-Israel. He was extremely pro-Saudi Arabia. 
but he wasn't a neocon per se. He stopped short of actual full-on war, full-on regime change war with Iran, which I'm certain Mike Pompeo, John Bolton, a number of other people in uh, Trump's administration would probably like to have had, certainly Elliot Abrams. So I think you have to take it by a case-by-case basis. But when it comes to Russia and, and Ukraine, it's certainly true that there's more anti-war sentiment in the in the Republican Party, or at least among the Republican base, than there is among the uh, left, from what I can tell. If, even, even those people on the left who have a, an anti-war position it, for those people, it doesn't seem to be a priority issue for them. They're more concerned about other things. Like I would imagine right now, they're more a lot more worried about uh, abortion than they are, say, uh, Ukraine. Yeah, that's what it looks like these days. In light of all that, do you ever see an anti-war left ever emerging again, or is that a relic of the past? Well, it's, it could happen under certain circumstances. I think that would have to happen is that you would have to have an administration that was disliked by the left, meaning a Republican administration. And they would have to be waging a war against a country that the left tends to have a favorable view of, like, say, Cuba or somewhere like that. I think, let's say if Donald Trump or let's say if Ron DeSantis, say, just to pick a politician, if Ron DeSantis were to get elected, and somehow launch a war against Cuba, yeah, I think you'd have a big left anti-war movement over that. You know, I think that if, uh, you know, if, when it comes to something like the Biden administration and their their proxy war against Russia in Ukraine, no, I think the left could care less about that. When it comes to Yemen, it took years for the progressive Democrats in the United States to pay any attention to Yemen as well. Uh, that's only been in the last uh, couple of years, maybe. In fact, I've always wondered how much of that was really just an anti-Trump maneuver because Trump w- was friendly, very friendly to the Saudis. I always wondered if perhaps some of the uh, anti-Yemen uh, war line that some of the Democrats were taking was really just more of an anti-Trump line. Yeah, I- I've gotten that impression as well. And a lot of like the... Also, like anti-Saudi line, I think may have also have been amplified by uh, the Hashogi killing, too, considering that he was like a journalist and is part of a lot of like, the journalist class that, that many of those Democrats tend to be most sympathetic towards. That was a major tur- point. Yeah, I think that if, you know, there was a resolution intr- introduced in Congress against the war in Yemen when Trump was still in office. And I don't think that would have happened if it hadn't have been for the Shikogi murder. That was a real turning point because that was full mask off for the Saudi regime. Uh, in fact, it's going to be interesting to see what happens with the, uh, as far as the fallout of the recent killing of the Palestinian journalist, the American Palestinian journalist by the IDF. Is that going to be a Khashoggi moment? I, I would think probably not. But it's a similar situation. Yes, that that case is really interesting and will be definitely on the lookout there. Well, that'll be all for today. Now, Keith, as always, pleasure chatting with you. Tell my listeners where they can keep up with your latest content. The best place to go is to the website where I'm the 
main editor, which is uh, attackthesystem.com, attackthesystem.com, just like it sounds. And I'm available on Facebook, Twitter, and MeWe as well. Great stuff. And everyone, thank you for tuning in. And with that, El Nino has spoken.